listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to author and historian Thomas Moynihan. Extinction is much further beyond that. It's uh, the end of all history, the end of all ability to retrospect, to look back and regret the mistakes of the past. Thomas shared the complex history of how humanity began to contemplate its capacity to bring about its own extinction, why the study of existential risk exposes a prevailing pessimism about the future, and what the search for extraterrestrial intelligence reveals about our unique place in the universe. Over the last century, humanity has suffered a self-esteem crisis. Increasingly, we've come to the realization that we alone are responsible for our own fate. And in doing so, we've simultaneously realized that there are a myriad of consequences for our actions. Some of those consequences might even lead to our own destruction. But as Thomas Moynihan explains in his comprehensive new book, X-Risk, discovering the ability to fundamentally destroy ourselves is luckily only a recent invention. Oddly enough, this is a message that should give us hope. Indeed, we have only arrived at this moment through a long and extensive history, one that has seen dramatic and ever-changing relationships with our capacity for destruction. As Moynihan points out, it is through understanding, appreciating, and learning from this history that we might actually find the potential to survive the next century, one that proves to be our riskiest yet. So, Tom, I I guess the obvious question is, at at what point exactly did humanity start to contemplate its capacity to bring about its own extinction? People first started worrying about the capacity for causing our own extinction in um, around 1900. So there are a couple of like rare instances of people discussing this, speculating about it beforehand, but it only really builds momentum around 1900, more specifically after the Great War then building in the interwar period, basically becoming far more prevalent within culture for obvious reasons after World War II. But people have been worrying about human extinction uh, caused by natural disasters uh, for a bit longer, so since about 1750. I mean, it feels like the the Enlightenment plays such a key role in the way in which we started to think about the possibility of our humanity ending. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. The reason for that is the fundamental insight coming from the Enlightenment is the idea that value is something made. But before that, there was a tendency to think of value as something inherent within the structure of the universe or something that we inherited from the precedent of nature or the precedent of tradition. Whereas during the Enlightenment, so we're talking about a period between depends how you define it, but something like 1650 to 1800, people started realizing that value was something made. And so what I mean by that is that it was something created by our own interactions, our own dealings with each other, our own activities. And so what that meant, in a sense, was that value in the sense of everything we care about rests entirely on our own activity. So it's not vouchsafed or made secure by anything beyond that. So in that sense, we're entirely responsible for it. Unsurprisingly, around this time, flowing naturally from that fundamental insight of the Enlightenment, people started worrying about the fact that if we go extinct or if we disappear, then value is done for. That's it. 
And it was basically realizing the severity of it that made people start thinking about it as an actual objective fact, a possible fact, a perspective event that could happen within nature. I mean, it's, it's not just about the biological entity, the Homo sapien that we're saving. You say in the book that it's, it's that idea, value, but also morals. The fact that human beings are capable of being moral entities is the thing worth saving. It's not, it's not just about saving us for the sake of saving us, is it? Exactly. So one of the things that prevented people from even thinking about extinction as an objective fact, so, you know, a prospect, is exactly because they didn't realize how severe that would be. You know, and this is something that flows through the ancient worldview in the West down into the kind of medieval Christian worldview, taking on different forms throughout those different epochs. But there was this kind of baseline intuition that, you know, humans and the things they value could be destroyed, but eventually that will be returned or compensated somehow. So there's this kind of sense of the narrative justice of nature. Basically, what that meant was all loss, uh, all destruction, all denigration of valuable things, things we care about, could only be kind of a local phenomenon in the sense that it's never permanent. Everything's either replaced or made up for or compensated for or justified or eventually revealed to be in some sense tending towards a wider moral purpose. I mean, it's, it's wild to think that there was even a time when extinction wasn't part of our consideration. And you've teased there that both ancient and medieval cultures, they thought very differently about the future. They didn't feel the need to preempt or, or even predict the long-term future because their relationship with the cosmos was one that was extremely different. So could you help explain sort of what was it like to be thinking about the cosmos at this time and how it informed our understanding of, of this thing we've now come to call the future? Yeah, yeah. So again, and it's at the risk of making massive, broad overgeneralizations. Um, oh, go ahead. But, you know. just, just, just make broad over, over arching generalizations. Why not? Well, they call it, yeah, they call it big history. And I guess, you know, <laughs> bigness involves, yeah, exactly, involves abstraction. But um, the basic kind of this, this baseline intuition is that there's kind of no distinction between ethics and what, you know, what we now call physics. I mean, back then they also called it that, but it had a slightly different meaning but an indistinction between ethics and physics. So what does that mean? It means that our tendency to now separate what we kind of think would be morally desirable or morally righteous from our objective theories about the world. So what actually is out there in the kind of vastness of the cosmos. That distinction didn't really exist, or at the very least, it was very messy and blurred, uh, entangled. A good example to take is the uh, the Ptolemaic cosmology. So this is the pre-Copernican cosmology, basically the model of the universe, the structure of the cosmos prior to Copernicus. And Copernicus was the astronomer who kind of revealed that the Earth, in fact, goes around the sun rather than the other way around. So in the Ptolemaic cosmos, it's basically a hierarchy of nested spheres. And each one of those spheres is populated by various orders of angels. And so what you can see, just kind of envisioning this, and I'm sure everyone's kind of seen the lovely woodcut pictures of this that come from medieval times. What you can see here is that hierarchy, which for the medieval mindset was just morality, 
there was no other kind of there's no kind of you know universal rights of man all of that stuff was later hierarchy was morality for them but nonetheless it's ensconced in the actual just physical structure of the cosmos in which they live and then a further thing notice that each of the levels in that cosmic hierarchy are populated so another interesting thing here is that you know the central most part of the Ptolemaic cosmology is hell. So that's like the center of the earth, the kind of basement of the universe. And God resides on the outermost sphere. But, you know, even though hell might be uh, filled with bad things, it's still filled with spirits, things experiencing kind of sentient, you know, what we now recognize as sentient. It might be bad, but it's still populated with something. So within this cosmology, there's absolutely no room for unpopulated regions of matter. So that's what I mean by this complete indistinction between ethics and physics, which kind of strikes us as weird now, but that's the way people thought for millennia. So, so in other words, there was no understanding that this was created for anything but us. In other words, no matter what we do, essentially nature's always going to come to the conclusion that the reason for it to exist is to sustain the human being. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that is correct. But like, you could put a couple of caveats on that because there's, there's, there is an aspect of medieval Christendom that is entirely human hating. So it's not kind of anthropocentric in that triumphant sense that the word is kind of now used to intend. It was absolutely human hating, but we were still the center in the same way that hell was still the center, but it was still a moral center. We were the kind of the center, the focus, the, the kind of the target of all that denigration. But still, that's like just, you know, you can have moral denigration, moral fallenness, the absolute fallenness of humanity, or you can have our perfection, our angelic nature. But nonetheless, there's no room again for the absolute frustration or absence of some kind of moral judgment. So, so yeah, no, I, it's 100% true that there's this tendency to think in terms of purpose and think in terms of some order being out there that will reveal itself in the end doesn't have to be kind of celebrating the human, but nonetheless, we're still the kind of central player of that narrative. I mean, that becomes the important distinction in the book, because what you're talking about there is the notion of apocalypse and extinction and apocalypse. They, they aesthetically might look the same, but what is at stake is the thing that's fundamentally different. So could you just help our audience understand what are those fundamental differences? Why is extinction and apocalypse uh, such a different thing? It's only very recently, and I'm talking in the past, like maybe five decades, maybe even less, maybe a couple of decades, that we've built enough of a conceptual toolkit to think about extinction in a naturalistic, physicalistic, scientific, rigorous way. It's only quite recently that we've developed that conceptual toolkit enough that we can now retroactively look back and go, oh, these are all the times when people weren't thinking about it. But to make that distinction clear, and it comes back to what I was just talking about in terms of, you know, it's kind of inherent narrative justice in the cosmos. Apocalypse, in a sense, and it's baked into the word, is the revelation of moral order. So think about Judgment Day, right? You know, it's kind of obvious in the word. Doomsday itself actually comes from this similar kind of etymological root. Doom means judgment. So it's this kind of day when the moral order becomes consummated, absolutely kind of manifest in reality. You know, God kind of makes sure that that happens uh, regardless of us, independent of our own action. The kind of catchphrase that I like to put this into relief is that apocalypse is a sense of an ending, 
whereas extinction is the ending of sense. So sense of an ending apocalypse, extinction, ending of sense. What do I mean by ending of sense? Well, where apocalypse is the consummation of the moral order, extinction in a sense is uh, its irreversible prostration. So there's no further revelations, there's no further meaning. It is the end of meaning itself. It's a really clean distinction once you can see it, but I would say we're still in the process of cleaning that distinction up for ourselves. So help me to understand the, the move from prehistory into Judeo-Christian religion, because it feels like at some point where we understood the cosmos as this thing that essentially existed to serve us. And then the moment at which we started to make these separations and understand there might be something such as apocalypse, was that the turning point for us to starting to realize that in actual fact, our relationship with the cosmos is vastly different than what we expected? Um, yeah, I mean, that's actually a really fantastic question. So again, to generalize, the Greek worldview tended to be eternalist. And what eternalist means is that essentially there is no kind of change. There's no irreversible change. All change, all new things are just returns of old things that we might have forgotten about, we might not have seen, but essentially nothing new ever comes along, nothing radically new. And this, in a sense, is kind of very obvious. You know, of course, people thought that living back on, you know, kind of Greek islands or the Greek mainland in kind of BC times, their sense of time was rooted in very obvious, very visible, observable things like the uh, cycling of the seasons, day and night cycles. Later, with the move to Christendom, you get a sense of history being progressive, but it's progressive in an entirely preordained sense. So it is very much that, you know, no matter what we do, completely independently of us, of our decision-making skills, our uncertainties, the messiness of knowing and acting, completely independently of all that, this kind of moral order will still be made consummate. How does something called the principle of plenitude play into this? Because that's certainly one of the ways in which we can kind of understand this idea that no matter what we do, something else will appear elsewhere. Nothing ceases to exist that basically won't exist again, as, as you're explaining there. Yeah. So the principle of plenitude is, again, it's one of these ideas that people have kind of assumed implicitly or explicitly for most of the history of thinking in the West. It fell apart around 200, 300 years ago, and now it seems so obvious to us that it's not true, um, although it does persist in certain ways, that we find it hard to imagine a kind of thinking in the mindset where this is a fundamental kind of axiom of reality. But nonetheless, it was. So what is it? Um, basically, the principle of plenitude holds that if something can happen, it will happen. And so... Just as much as there's never any kind of wasted space in nature where something could be, but simply never is, by that same token, something can never leave nature and leave behind a gap or a kind of wasted opportunity where something could be, but never returns. So basically what it means is that there are no absences in nature. All absences are temporary. So, you know, a species might disappear. You know, we have records of Romans noticing this. You know, there was a particular plant they used as a contraceptive and uh, the supply couldn't keep up with the demand. You know, those <laughs> Romans knew how to have a good time and the plant disappeared. And we have records of Roman naturalists talking about the disappearance of this plant. And so that might lead you to think they have this kind of basic intuition about extinctions 
or the irreversible loss of things from nature. But it's all nested within this wider kind of framework of, you know, the principle of plenitude. Everything lost is later regained or regained elsewhere in space. It's this, you know, very wide kind of framework level assumption that means that you can talk about catastrophes and disasters and losses. And this applies not just to things, but also to values. You can have losses, but they're always a local phenomenon. It's always nested within this wider system of equilibrium between loss and compensation. So you can see naturally why this means that no one took extinction seriously, because it's always basically a local affair. But biologists call this an extirpation. So an extirpation is the loss of a species from a specific locale rather than extinction, which is its loss forever and everywhere. Even though you can see people talking about the loss of animals, the dodo disappeared sometime in the 1600s. People only actually noticed it was gone forever about 200 years later. For the longest period of time, there was no concept of extinction, only extirpation. So, so when we apply that to humans, basically ancient cultures had seen empires rise, they'd seen empires fall, they'd seen whole cities be destroyed and then be built again from the ashes. And I guess all of that then informs the way in which they did have a relationship with the future, which was through um, symbols such as the Oracle of Delphi. But the way in which she saw the future was very encroached and, and based on what you're describing there. She she didn't predict the, the far future. And what she was talking about was things that they had seen in their recent present and that she was allowing to say would represent themselves again and again ad infinitum. Could you sort of explain a little bit more about that, that relationship they did have with at least oracles in ancient times and how that helped to inform sort of their navigation of the the near future, I guess. One of the distinctions between prophecy, because people have always been engaging in prophecy as kind of one of those perennial natural impulses of what we are, you know, the difference between prophecy and prediction is that prediction is very good at noticing when it's wrong. In fact, it's basically designed to, you know, notice when it's wrong. It's kind of sensitive to its own uncertainty. Whereas prophecy absolutely isn't. You know, most prophecies end up just being kind of visions of what people want to happen or want to happen to other people that they don't like. You know, it's, 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 uh, there's a fundamental difference here. People, they had these oracles like the Oracle of Delphi, as you say. And so there was an engagement with, you know, some kind of sense of looking forward. Um, but again, as you say, it was always basically different versions of the same thing. So different versions of the past. I think a comparison you can make here is between unicorns, mythological beings, chimeras, and scientific theories. They're both unobservable. So the, the kind of objects that science poses, no one's ever seen an atom. We see it through kind of abstractions and prostheses. But what makes it different from a unicorn? What makes it different from a kind of a goat stack is what Aristotle would use instead of a unicorn. It's basically because it's counterintuitive in lots of ways. So there's this, uh, there's this idea of minimally counterintuitive ideas to basically explain the distinction between myths and scientific theories. So a myth is something that's minimally counterintuitive. It's just a normal thing that we've all seen before, but with a little twist on it. And those ideas tend to spread because they've got that catchy kind of spice to them, but they're basically things that we're all familiar with. So they spread very easily. 
Whereas scientific theories tend to be maximally counterintuitive. Moving from that distinction, I think you can apply that to the distinction between our modern kind of scientific forecasts of the future, which are maximally counterintuitive in the sense that they often forecast, you know, things like the heat death of the universe at the, we're talking like the largest possible level. Whereas, you know, yeah, exactly as you say, the older relations to the future were just regurgitated forms of the past. You know, there are points where Aristotle, for example, explicitly says as much, you know, he says, we only have knowledge of things that have already been actual. And sometimes on very rare occasions, we can become acquainted with things just as they come into actuality. You'll notice that what that means is that we can't think of possibilities that no one's ever seen before. And there's one important possibility that none of us have ever experienced, and that's the extinction of humanity, because no one would be around to talk about it or think about it anymore. So that was an important thing missing from their kind of conceptual repertoire when it came to the range of possibility uh, for the past, the present and the future. That, that, that almost feels like a form of hubris. It's like, because we haven't seen the destruction of humanity on a, on a totalizing scale, then you know what? As far as we're concerned, we don't think it's ever going to happen. And I wonder if the way in which we present and represent extinction in our media and in our films and in our science fictional narratives at such a, a crazy rate at the moment with the, the idea of uh, seeing New York under under meters and meters of, of, of water we've been exposed to the idea of our extinction in multiple forms of media, in multiple ways. And these are very visceral ways in which we're seeing our destruction, especially after the end of 9-11 and, and what was happening around that particular period of time. Do you think that by creating that form of media, by putting these sort of dystopian visions into the world that we're almost, I guess, flirting with self-fulfilling prophecy? There's an interesting thing is... Um the kind of discourse upon ruins that goes back kind of to the 18th century, at least in it's like becoming a very popular kind of trope within popular culture. You know, you get the kind of romantic poets, they used to love to uh, kind of you know, discourse upon the ruins of lost civilizations. Plato also did the same thing, the myth of Atlantis, but it becomes like a major kind of uh, poetic literary trope kind of around 1800 which is also around the time when speculations on outright extinction also emerge. But again, we have to be careful in the vicinity of these ideas because those things are, in a sense, completely different. So the ability to kind of ponder upon ruins is a continuation of history. It might be a continuation of history for someone else, someone that we wouldn't recognize. And I think that's where the attraction that you point out in terms of the fall of empires, and particularly post 9-11, we can understand why that might become more attractive than it was before. It's a sense that it's no longer my history, but it's still someone's, this kind of future point where someone's looking back on the ruins of my, my epoch or my empire, right? But still, it's still someone there. There's still someone around. There's still something, you know, it might not be recognizably us or me or I, but it's still recognizably human or at least some kind of observer that's understanding the flow of history. Whereas extinction is much further beyond that. It's uh, the end of all history, the end of all ability to retrospect, to look back and regret the mistakes of the past. That's inherently harder to kind of put on the silver screen to, to represent how do you narrativize the end of all narration. What on the surface seems like our kind of you know, cinema obsession with the extinction of humanity I can think of barely any films that actually 
properly represent the extinction of humanity. They represent last man scenarios. They represent, you know, kind of post-apocalyptic, so collapse, civilizational collapses. But there are rarely any that show all of humanity disappearing and the world continuing without us. I mean, it would make for a kind of boring film. You know, I mean, there are ones where there are aliens or like post-humans around after us. But again, there is a sense of continuation there. That's what you do so well in this, this book. You tease the idea of what it would mean to not have meaning anymore. And, and that's really hard for folks to, to sort of grasp. But essentially, human beings are the things that give meaning and value into the world. We have intrinsic value because we're able to do that. And we've gone through these, these historical points, starting to realize what does that value really mean? And I guess it all goes back in some way, shape or form to the way in which we have a relationship with nature and how nature functions. And we have to ask ourselves whether is this world, is it is it full of value or is it full of disvalue? Is the earth itself, is it alive or is it dead? Does organic matter emerge from the dead matter or does it happen the other way around? So I, I guess what we're really dealing with and, and, and struggling with when we ask these questions of what it means for humans to become extinct is, is really what does it mean when there's no longer these value-making entities to acknowledge the existence of life in the universe? And I guess that the moment where we started to realize that in actual fact our, our relationship with nature is slightly problematic was a turning point between the 1600s and the 1800s that you've described as so wonderfully as cosmic nonchalance. So I guess what is cosmic nonchalance and how does that function into our changing relationship with nature, ourselves, and our understanding of what might be possible in terms of our existence? Before I answer the question on cosmic nonchalance, just to pick up on uh, one of the things you said Please. Uh, regarding value and kind of nature, facts, value, how those things all link up. We don't have a good answer for that yet, but we're getting there very slowly. Yeah, <laughs> we're trying. Yeah. But I'm glad that you said acknowledge uh, when you said, you know, if we're gone, there's nothing around to acknowledge the value. Because I think a lot of these discussions, some people might kind of hear instead of talking about the loss of humanity as something incredibly bad, potentially the worst thing that could happen to us. But it sounds very anthropocentric in the sense that we're the only valuable thing in the universe, which might sound like these kind of older worldviews that at least implicitly I'm, I'm kind of proposing that we've had some kind of advancement in insight or wisdom over in that they propose that the universe was made for us. The universe was absolutely not made for us. It doesn't hate us. It doesn't love us. It's absolutely unresponsive to anything we recognize as hate or love. So again, this is why the kind of pessimism that you get, uh, particularly after 1800, particularly after the prospect of extinction kind of unleashes itself in culture, you get this kind of Schopenhauer, Dassard, these kind of thinkers promulgate this view of nature hating us and being this kind of you know evil force. And you still get it. Modern day nihilists love this stuff. Cthulhu, all that kind of Cthuloid discourse, right? But that's still nature caring about us. But to get back to the wider point, there are things with intrinsic value, at least I think so, that aren't humans. So biodiversity, other species, maybe just complexity itself, physical complexity, maybe even uh, kind of nature in its independence. There's a sublimity in that that we, we kind of, you know, think might be important just beyond our response to it. It's not that we're the only valuable things in the universe, but insofar as we recognize we are the only evaluators that we currently know of. 
we're the only things that can make judgments about those things that might have intrinsic value beyond us. We're also the only things that are very good at kind of doing instrumental value very well, but we're also the only things that seem to be able to recognize terminal values, so intrinsic values. Um, so that leads me on to answering your actual question, cosmic nonchalance. So these worldviews that we've been talking about, the ancient one, the Christian one, where you know, kind of value is safe and secure, independent of our actions. You might think that that all fell apart when the scientific revolution swung around and uh, got rid of all those nasty myths from our uh, from our outlook. Unfortunately, history is never that simple, particularly the history of ideas. One thing I've been thinking about a lot recently is that with the history of technology, you can point to when a steam engine was made and go, "That's when the steam engine first kind of popped into existence." With ideas, it's way more messy. And one of the governing forces of kind of our human intellect is what I call conceptual inertia. So overhang from old ways of thinking into what seem kind of rid of those older ways. And I'm sure there are plenty of things that we're currently talking about and doing that are riddled with forms of conceptual inertia that people in 200 years will denigrate us for, hopefully. So one of these examples of conceptual inertia within the scientific worldview was taking over the principle of plenitude. So what that meant in practice was uh, scientists would look up at this vast cosmos that had been revealed, you know, the decentering of planet Earth kind of it made the notion of a plurality of worlds far more popular. So people have thought about plural worlds, other planets beyond, you know, the ones that we can see, you know, since people have been thinking about the, the, the wider cosmos, probably. But it gained a lot of momentum after the scientific revolution. So these scientists would look up and think about these, you know, vast amounts of, of worlds elsewhere. You know, if every star has planets like our one does, then there's a lot of planets out there. And they just thought, well, it would be a lot of wasted space if they didn't have living life forms, you know, rational beings to appreciate the, you know, the kind of beauty of nature, the work of God's creation on them. So they all just presumed that all these other planets were populated and populated with basically humanoid beings. So, you know, you get some of the best scientists at the epoch making claims saying, you know, yes, they must have geometry that's exactly the same as ours. Yes, they must have sciences. They must enjoy the benefits of society. They must live in houses as well, of course, because, you know, they must protect themselves from the elements. They're bipedal. Uh, some of them admitted that they might be uh, kind of crustaceans, but they'd still be bipedal and have binocular eyes. So basically, this kind of idea that the Copernican revolution decentered humanity was a bit more complicated than that, because in decentering us, it kind of projected us across infinity. Uh, so we'd look up into this vast cosmos and see the human reflected back at us. So a great example of conceptual inertia. But what this, you know, to kind of finally answer your question, what this meant was that people thought that if our planet was destroyed and people have been playing around with these ideas in a kind of recognizably modern sense since the beginning of the scientific revolution, they thought, well, that doesn't really matter. Say our planet just you know, gets cracked and destroyed, desecrated. It doesn't matter because there's humanoids elsewhere following their valuable pursuits, enjoying the universe, you know, feeling all of the kind of uh, pleasures and pains of life. You know, our loss is basically a meaningless loss. You know, you might be surprised to kind of hear this, but people said this explicitly uh, from 1600s down to the mid 1700s uh, and even later. 
having heard what you've just said there, I guess uh, we we had this moment in time where we sort of had this peopled relationship with the cosmos, this assumption that that the entirety of whatever was out there was very similar and perhaps even a reflection of what we had here back on Earth. But there started to be cracks in that cosmic nonchalance. And the first cracks were quite literally from the realization that things could crack through our atmosphere. We started to realize that in actual fact, the cosmos was no longer stable or secure, but in actual fact, it might be a hazard full of threats from things like near Earth objects. So how did our realization and understanding of geoscience start to destabilize the idea that what's out there is also a very kind of relaxed version of, of what we have here on Earth? Mm, yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a long story, the uh, move from a kind of perfect cosmos. So Aristotle, again, you know, going back to Aristotle, he said that the heavens were impermanent, they were perfect, so they were mm-hmm. incapable of corruption. And that's because there was a sense of the really nice balance of the orbits and their kind of continuous, methodical, uh, seemingly painstakingly perfect motion. Then, you know, that started to fall apart when people like Galileo noticed sunspots and they thought, okay, that looks like a, a spot on a human is a form of corruption. So a spot on the sun that, you know, seems to counteract what Aristotle was saying. And then people started to think more about asteroids and comets. So these are these kind of bits of rock that are just kind of flying around and seem to kind of, they seem to destabilize basically the perfect ordering. So towards the end of the 1800s, people started to document these kind of very large um, intrasolar comets. So Ceres, Pallas, and these seem like kind of bits of larger planets, these kind of ruins to go back to the topic of ruins. People started to think, our own solar system doesn't seem to have this perfect, rational, ordered, symmetrical design. It's filled with bits of junk. And at the same time, people started to also think, well, maybe there's evidence that they've hit the planet before. So you can find kind of French uh, philosophers of the Enlightenment talking about this quite early on. And this all was moving in tandem, as you say, with the maturation of geoscience as a scientific field. So it's kind of one of the slightly younger fields of science, you know, the 1700s are like the big century for the consolidation of what we now recognize as the earth sciences. Prior to that, people kind of either presumed that the earth had always been here in the way that it was now, or they presumed that, you know, the kind of story of the earth was also the story of Adam and Eve and, you know, the fall of mankind, you know, kind of earlier on in the 1700s, geological thinking tended to be as sophisticated as just going those mountains, they're not symmetrical. They're kind of ugly. How do I explain that? Because this idea of God being the perfect designer, the perfect craftsman, people thought that, you know, he would have created this perfectly spherical planet. But then obviously, you know, valleys and mountains kind of counteract that. So originally people were like, oh, it's our fault because we ate the apple and uh, sinned and then God messed up, the, you know, this perfect planet we had. But then eventually people started thinking more in terms of physical causes rather than moral narratives. So people started thinking of physical causes of all these potmarks, these you know, evidence of a kind of ruined planet. And by the end of the century, there was a vast amount of uh, paleontological evidence had built. So scientists had kind of been thinking about fossils. Da Vinci was one of the first to think of them properly as kind of biogenic matter. So things caused by organisms. 
prior to that people thought they were kind of jokes that nature played on us so it'd be a, a kind of cheeky rock would decide to look like a, a you know kind of a shell but da vinci and a couple of other kind of renaissance scholars started going no they're probably imprints from very old life forms but when it was just shells and kind of bivalves and these little things uh it was easy to have recourse to the principle of plenitude and say well, even if we can't see these animals on our back door still alive, even if we only have them in these kind of fossilized forms, they probably exist somewhere else and no one's taking much notice of them. Or in the case of shells, it's very easy to say that they were still at the bottom of the ocean somewhere, still alive, still living. By the 1750s, there was evidence of bones from what we now recognize as mastodons, mammoths, you know, kind of megafauna. It's a lot harder to maintain that those are hiding somewhere beyond our kind of um, observation. Thomas Jefferson, he um, famously maintained this up until kind of 1790s, when most scientists were reaching consensus around the fact that, no, these bones were kind of prehistoric, therefore extinct beasts. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was absolutely confident that there were mammoths still roaming around in the kind of the wilderness of the Americas. But as I said, exactly in the 1790s, that there was scientific consensus reached about the factual, undeniable reality of species extinctions. So previous species had simply disappeared for whatever reason. They'd, they'd gone, they were no longer around, which was a shock to this worldview, still enamored with you know, plenitude. Around this time as well, scientists were taking more look into the kind of deeper strata and were starting to realize, well, there's no fossils in these ones. And so you get these kind of first comments on the idea that the earth might have actually existed, pre-existed complex life. So this was a radically new idea as well. And so this is what then takes us back up, up into the sky is, you know, these kind of scientists looking deep down into the earth and seeing for the first time very evidently that life hadn't always been a permanent feature on our own planet. If that hasn't always been a permanent feature on our own planet, why should we presume that it's an omnipresent feature of the whole cosmos. So it was kind of looking inwards that made us see the outer space in a completely different way. I mean, all that just ends with us feeling completely decentered, completely decoupled, and, and as you so wonderfully describe in the book, cosmically lonely, you know, we're the only ones, we're potentially the only ones there. And, and that kind of came to a, to a, a screeching halt in front of our eyes when suddenly we realized that humans were fast becoming decoupled from the, the cosmos because we started to realize that maybe there's no grand plan for us. And oddly enough, aliens seem to be pretty important to sort of how we thought about our own place in the universe. And part of that is due to a paradox. And that is one of the Fermi paradox. So uh, for our audience, firstly, could you describe what the Fermi paradox is? And, and secondly, uh, describe how it had such a major impact on our thoughts about our own survival and, and even why our own survival might be urgently important. Yeah, yeah. So aliens of course going to be important in this narrative, <laughs> given that they were the kind of alibi that we used to point to, to go, oh no, extinction doesn't exist because there are humans everywhere. Uh -huh. There are alien humans. So this builds uh, throughout the 1800s, this sense that, hang on, all this evidence from myriad fields of science seems to be converging on this idea that it's probably quite bad practice to like contaminate all of our objective factual theories with our moral wishes and desires. So with that backdrop, you begin to get a couple of people here and there, philosophers, scientists, saying, actually, it's 
probably quite naive to presume that the whole universe is populated with humans. And this was also the century of vast progress. Uh, humanity, really, the great acceleration, as we now call it, you know, kind of really beginning to become a planetary force. So you start to get people talking about, you know, humanity's effect on the whole planet. People in the 1800s first started thinking of words for this. So the kind of recent craze around the Anthropocene, this, there was a fad for it back in the 1800s, and a lot of scientists kind of uh, were started calling our, our kind of geological epoch uh, the Anthropozoic, uh, similar kind of things. So you get this sense that intelligence seems to kind of be on this upward track to really disturbing its environment, becoming an obvious force within it. And in the other direction, this sense that, oh, we can't just look up at the sky and presume that it's populated with stuff like us. And so those two, you know, growing, in a sense, conflicting intuitions come to a head uh, in 1950 and reach a point of enunciation in the physicist Enrico Fermi. So he was famously at a lunch with some of his colleagues on the Manhattan Project, you know, a nice kind of historical poeticism here that I'm sure we'll come back to. But, you know, they're on this kind of fateful site of the, uh, you know, the Manhattan Project. And they're walking to lunch and they're talking about, you know, kind of the UFO craze that was just then beginning to kind of build. And they sit down to dinner, probably talking about other things, probably talking about chain reactions. And Fermi suddenly turns around and goes, well, where is everyone? And all of you know, the other party members knew exactly what he was talking about. He was talking about the aliens. And so, you know, on kind of first reflection, it seems like maybe a silly thing to ask. Then on second reflection, it's like, oh, that's an interesting question. But one of the things that at least I found is the more you think about this, the more profound it becomes. So much so that I think it could be one of the most important riddles of the modern scientific worldview. So it rests on those two intuitions that I was just talking about. The intelligence tends to really disrupt its environment on the one hand. And on the other hand, that we see absolutely no evidence of large-scale disruptions when we look up into the night sky. So that tells us something in a sense. It tells us that either we're the first thing on that upwards conveyor belt to large-scale disruption, or there's something that stops any kind of intelligence from going from being kind of planet-bound to expanding outwards. And so, you know, there's this really nice kind of in the sense that I was just talking about where it was kind of looking down into the past of the earth that made us think about the precarity of intelligence in the wider cosmos, that looking into the cosmos and seeing the silence then caused us to look back down onto ourselves and think, you know, there's something quite wrong here. Well, that's almost the joke in your book, it's, it's the aliens made us realize just how important the humans are, or the lack of aliens in actual fact made us realize just how important uh, we are. Because uh, what the Fermi paradox actually suggests is that we might be the best chance of propagating this thing called life, this thing called consciousness, possibly this thing called intelligence throughout the universe. And then it confronts us with something that seems to be a factor of everyday life, which is the reason we might not be seeing these quote unquote 
aliens is because they just never made it through the technological progression that we're currently going through to be able to then go to the stars and to be able to uh, visit and communicate with us. Because if they were there, perhaps we would have seen them already and we might be going through that process of advancing our technology. But by doing so, that might be the tipping point and that might be the thing that means that we don't leave the planet because we become so technologically advanced that we actually end up destroying ourselves before we get the chance to go visit other folk. I guess then the question is, how does that change our relationship with the universe? Because uh, you say so beautifully in, in the book how when we suddenly realize that maybe we're the universe's best hope at propagating life, at, at making this very lifeless place full of things that are in the image and likeness of us, you say that essentially that puts us in a position of making us the gardeners of the galaxy, not guardians of the galaxy, but gardeners of the galaxy, engaged in this horticulture of the heavens. I mean, is, is that the crux of it? Is that the reason we're here to propagate the other planets? Or is that just one possibility for, for why human beings in our current state right here on planet Earth are so important? One of the important things to keep in mind is that you know a lot of this reasoning going on is very probabilistic, drenched in uncertainty. And you know there's this kind of reaction to that argument that's like, oh, what? We're just, we're, the only reason we're important is because we're unique. And that's not quite it, because everything is unique. Every species is unique because there's only one of it. If it goes, that's it gone forever. So, you know, it's kind of not unique to be unique in that pure, brute, factual sense. But we're able to, as I said earlier, kind of make evaluative judgments to value things, to find things valuable, to acknowledge them as valuable. And one of the things that we acknowledge as valuable is intelligence, also life. So that's where the kind of horticultural stuff comes in, you know, it's this recognition that ahead of every, any evidence to the contrary, it would be immensely rash for us to be cosmically nonchalant and go, well, there'll be someone else elsewhere. So, you know, the kind of, in terms of contemporary science, science and scientists, the major person that I can think of that might be someone that you'd want to like point the finger at and go, you're, you're a cosmic nonchalantist. Uh, would be Simon Conway Morris, who's a, a brilliant kind of, he studies macroevolution, he's a bi biologist, and he's a big fan of this thing called convergent evolution. So we've just had an example of it happen in the UK, where coronavirus has picked up a, a mutation, a beneficial mutation, independently, but identical to the South African variant. Uh, that's an example of convergent evolution, where there's something kind of beneficial in the design space of an organism or of organisms such that they tend towards it just through the kind of blind process of natural selection. The canonical examples are eyeballs. Those evolved independently a whole bunch of times. Echolocation as well. The kind of ichthyoid shape that is shared by dolphins, which are mammals, fish, and ichthyosauruses, which are uh, reptiles. So we have all these examples of convergent evolution. Anyway, Conway Morris is very confident that humans are so kind of convergently adaptive that there's an inevitability in their existence. But he argues, just after kind of making this argument, he argues, but we can't just presume that there's humans elsewhere ahead of evidence. How rash would that be? And, you know, the reason why the kind of older people who believed in this kind of, you know, upward conveyor belt towards something very humanoid 
the reason why that didn't really occur to them is because they weren't thinking probabilistically, I don't think. But yeah, nonetheless, you know, like we have no evidence to the contrary, so we should act as if we are the only intelligent thing in the universe. And that's not human centrism, it's just value centrism, you know. It's not we just happen to be the kind of bootloader of what is valuable and intelligent. So taking all of that into account, through reading this, like I've gained personally, I think, like quite a strong appreciation of the kind of drive to wanting the universe to be a moral place. Kind of something that in our disillusioned, dejected moment in history seems so naive that the very impulse is kind of renunciated. Just reading how all these people from the past and how desperately they wanted this to be true, I think that when we realize that it isn't true in the sense that it's just kind of by default reflected back to us by the cosmos, you know, that it's, you know, it's full of value just independently of us, that's just not true. We shouldn't just therefore give up on value. We should realize that you know, it's in a sense our obligation to fix the cosmos. Because at the moment, yes, it is a massive amount of wasted real estate for all these kind of, you know, places being bathed in energy, like abundant energy that is currently just going to squander. You know, it's just hitting inorganic masses. As far as we know, the whole galaxy, there's nothing interesting going on in it except for potentially here. So in that sense, it's kind of almost our obligation to go out and fix that waste in the same way that, say, if you saw... A, a art gallery burning, you'd want to stop it. Currently, we're in that cosmic situation where there's kind of a dam of things that could be used to create value that's just flowing away. And all we'd need to do is find a way to channel it and use it. Again, this doesn't have to be human centrism. If we agree that life, biodiversity, complexity itself is in some sense intrinsically value, valuable, then again, it's in a sense our duty to go and you know maximize it elsewhere. Because at the moment, as I said, you know, there, yeah, it's very much the opposite situation. That's what I love about how you've structured your writing here is, is that you're not really telling us the history of things that are going to kill us. You're telling us the history of the value of the human being. This is really an argument whereby you're using the idea of extinction to make us suddenly stand up for ourselves as human beings and go, you know what, Actual, in actual fact, we do deserve to, to be around and for these multitude of reasons. And do you so interestingly look at this idea of humanoids re-emerging, the idea that, you know, if we did suddenly die off and, and to be fair, we're just a tiny, tiny little blip in terms of the cosmic scale of time. So if something did destroy us, would the, the multitude of time that we've got allow for us to re-emerge again? And, and the question is, well, yes, possibly. And, and maybe we have had this process of, of reoccurrence, maybe not on this planet, but, but other planets. And then that begs the question of, then what exactly are we trying to preserve? Are we trying to preserve just the humanoid or the emergence of the humanoid throughout time and space? Or are we trying to preserve the collective knowledge that we're able to create through this moment of time? Because the one thing that humans do so well and do so uniquely is that they have a collective culture. They're able to, to uh, uh, take knowledge and pass it from the past 
into the present and then through to the future. Um, that's our very unique skill. And it feels like what we're trying to preserve is that, the body of knowledge itself, not so much whether it comes in the form of a, of a human person, but what we've learned by just being human is the thing that's worth preserving. You know, I guess because we have to kind of, again, abstract. Now we're talking about the whole cosmos <laughs> and the place of morality within it. Uh -huh. You know, you have to abstract. And that means that you talk, I, you know, I, I, I use the word value a lot. Obviously, a lot of people are probably thinking, what does that mean? Um, I would say, <laughs> yeah, what's the value out of being human in the 21st century? What's our return on this blasted investment? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and yeah, I mean, as, as you point out, uh, you know, value has this kind of, you know, dismal science twinge mm. to it that, uh, you know, what I would say is that what I'm saying as value is just the ability to correct ourselves. So a lot of people that don't like the human and, you know, maybe this is a kind of bias that I have from being the person that I am and writing the things I am and reading the comments on the things that I do. But, you know, uh, I, and I'm not talking about kind of anti-humanist academics. Uh, I'm talking about this just kind of general anti-humanist tone. Uh, it finds mm -hmm. expression in people being like, oh, I agree with Thanos. These kind of these kind of, you know, kind of pop cultural uh, coordinates, but nonetheless, I think they're important. So, you know, there is this kind of general tone, I would say. Uh, I know that's diffuse, but, you know. Well, does that general tone, does it emerge from the environmentalist movement or how the environmentalist movement has at least presented itself in the last two to three years? Because we have something quite literally called extinction rebellion, which puts all the emphasis on the extinction and very little emphasis on the rebellion. It just feels like here's the thing we're heading towards as if that's the thing that's going to scare us finally into the rebellion. <laughs> it's almost as if uh, as if they've got their priorities muxed uh, there. But, but you know, th there's, there's vast swathes of people in the environmentalist movement who would argue, you know, if humans just got out the way, then nature would fix the climate mess that we've caused and then something else will re-emerge in our place hopefully in in sync with what's going on in the on the planet earth so you know i i can sort of understand that impetus i think the environmentalist movement didn't come up with that it's kind of latched onto it as this pre-existing waft in the kind of air of mm -hmm. culture in in you know western europe which is the main place where this kind of exists i think and a part of this research is I look back on kind of previous fears of previous times. And the major one throughout the 50s and 60s, aside from nuclear, thermonuclear uh, annihilation, was overpopulation. And this was the original kind of beginnings of the environmentalist movement. You know, on the one hand, you have Silent Spring and Rachel Carson, that was kind of raising the alarm on um, pesticide use and kind of that type of environmental degradation. But the other major strand was neo-Malthusianism, which basically says there are too many humans. And uh, you read that stuff and it's so unpalatable. And by our own kind of standards, you know, uh, kind of say 60 years later, it's, you know, there's some really nasty stuff in there, you know, people advising that, you know, the kind of the developing world administers uh, sterilization programs, you know, really kind of nasty stuff. Obviously, you don't see that now in the kind of more anti-humanist, more Malthusian aspects of the environmental movement as it currently stands. But nonetheless, there is, again, as a form of inertia, I think, yeah, slightly pernicious Malthusian um, sentiment remaining there. So, you know, this idea that we are the virus. Yeah, I think it's 
it's an inverted sense of the old sense of cosmic nonchalance that I kind of picked up earlier talking about hell for the medieval world or this kind of idea that Schopenhauer, Dassard, they, Schopenhauer actually specifically said, we live in the worst of all possible worlds. And he really wanted that to be true. These people stand in that lineage where it's, you know, it can parade as hard-nosed and realist because it's pessimist, uh, although those two words are completely not the same thing. It can parade as those because it's all dark and nasty and it seems to be kind of taking account of the decentering lessons of, you know, the past kind of centuries. But again, it's just they want to be the center of the world, even if they want to be world bane rather than, you know, the purpose, the whole the teleological conversion point of all creation. They still want to be, they want to be world bane because I, I don't want to psychoanalyze people, but, you know, you, I, I will allow, you know, the listener to have a go at it. But yeah, I, 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 I think it is, yeah, particularly there are very pernicious Malthusian strains in current thinking. But on a different end of things, one of the reasons for pessimism about the future is looking to the crimes of the recent past. And they are humongous and awful, atrocious, unforgivable. So that means that, you know, there's a kind of a skepticism or suspicion about value itself and what it, what it even is. Does it even, is it even something that guides our actions? Do we use reason to kind of get where we're going or do we just end up there and post hoc rationalize backwards and justify everything? You know, I think that's a major uh, split in different ways of thinking about the world that's still with us. I would say about the kind of crimes of the past is that what value is, again, what I was saying earlier, is the ability to correct yourself, uh, the ability to right those wrongs. And so, you know, I would say they will always remain unforgivable. There's no sense of this utopia future. Marx said that the final revolution will justify all previous ones. You know, you can see why that leads into slightly dangerous forms of utopian thinking, and I agree. But we can, at least in the long prospect of the future, should we not muck up, create a world that is so radically better than the current one that the whole thing looks less, maybe slightly less cruel and pointless and evil. And so it's not just writing the crimes of the human past. I think it's also writing the crimes of the, you know, the cosmic past. It's just this vast abiotic waste that's filled with nothing of kind of interest or value until potentially we emerged, you know? billions of years before us where it was just squandering energy, stars just pumping out, you know, vast amounts of energy onto nothingness. I think, you know, in a sense, we can kind of tip the balance a little bit in the future. And so that's what I think value is, is basically just, there is value in the value in being able to correct yourself, basically. So I think that's why we should, we should stick around. I mean, the, the, the problem comes when we make a mistake that isn't correctable. And I think that's where the entire field of existential risk really plays in the 21st century. And, and you're affiliated with the University of Oxford's Future Humanity Institute, which has figures like Nick Bostrom, who's lovingly called Bostradamus by a mentor of mine, um, Professor Steve Fuller. And, and he really helped to solidify this idea of existential risk in the 21st century. So why do you think there's been such an emergence of thinkers like this who who want to look at the multitude of possibilities for the extinction of our humanity in a very sort of objective way. I, I think it's picking up on the kind of what I said at the very beginning is, you know, it's only in the past maybe two or three decades that we've actually created a crisp enough concept of what's actually at stake in extinction. 
now it's a lot easier to look back and go, oh, these are all the times when people weren't thinking about it. And so I think what I see as the reasons for this and, you know, people that have lived through this would have perhaps better answers. But what I see is uh, a couple of things. So the Cold War creates this kind of sense of impending doom, but that doom is very diffuse and kind of people talk interchangeably about the destruction of the West, the destruction of civilization itself, the destruction of the whole species, because those things are all so enormous that they all kind of just meld together. Uh, so there's this cognitive bias called scope neglect, where kind of when things get big enough, numbers, uh, you know, uh, scales of severity, we just kind of lose ability to distinguish between them, uh, even though those distinctions might be incredibly important and vast. And so one of those is that around kind of the 1980s, and the reasons for this might be that it was around this time that scientists really were putting together a robust case for the actual kind of mechanisms behind nuclear fallout that could lead to outright extinction. So we're talking about nuclear winter. Uh, Carl Sagan kind of pioneered that work. It was around this time that philosophers, and Sagan as well, but philosophers, um, I'm thinking primarily the ethicist Derek Parfit, it started making these arguments that human extinction is severe in a way that's far, far, far worse than, say, the destruction of even 99% of humans. Because, you know, that remaining 1%, and there are billions of us, so that's actually a significant amount of people, even though that's like the worst thing that would ever happen in history thus far, there's still the potential for history to continue. So it kind of falls into the, the ruination that we were talking about earlier. Whereas with the outright extinction of humanity, that's not just the destruction of all those kind of currently living souls uh, and the pain and the you know, frustration and the loss that that causes. It's also the loss of the entire future. So it's not just the loss of humanity, it's the loss of humanity's potential as well. And so you can see how that links back into you know, value being the ability to correct yourself. But anyway, so Parfit made this argument. So did a dearmament activist, Jonathan Shell. A bunch of people kind of convergently made this argument around the same time in the 80s really, you know, again, put into crisp distinction just how much worse extinction would be to a lot of the other kind of things that we thought of as worst case scenarios. And so I think that created a kind of clean, ethical, philosophical case. It was also in the 80s that the Fermi paradox really started to be taken and paid attention to as a serious scientific issue amongst cosmologists, astronomers, astrophysicists, people interested in this stuff, and really started to become a paradox. So there was a lot of optimism around SETI, search for extraterrestrial intelligence, in the 60s and 70s. Then in the 80s, that starts to fall apart for myriad reasons. Uh, so the silence became a lot louder in the 80s as well. Then around the 90s, the internet you know, kind of takes hold. And I think, yeah, disparate communities of kind of, I guess what you'd now call a nerd, uh, you know, kind of highly intelligent people that are like able to think outside the box, think unconventionally, but, you know, also rigorously, you know, these communities coalesce. And one of them was the transhumanist community and the extropian community as well, which had this very strong sense of the sheer amount of freedom and uh, value that could be in the future. One of the things that kind of was the coalescing factor of that community was the idea of nanotechnology. And so nanotechnology presented itself as potentially unlocking the ability for kind of unbounded cornucopianism, anything we want. 
but at the same time presented this kind of ability to potentially destroy the biosphere if it was invented. This was an idea that was like very, very much in vogue during the 90s. I'm thinking of Eric Drexler, his work. So th this kind of, you know, was the basis of the transhumanist community. So there was a sense of what now appears very utopian in their sense of this impending nanotechnological future. But there was also a very resolute idea in recognition that that vast, you know, valuable future over the hill, you know, we could go extinct before we reach there. So it's a kind of upping of the stakes. And yeah, then since then, there have been similar communities after the transhumanist one in the 90s that have kind of been torchbearers for those similar themes. So thinking kind of the less wrong community, the online rationalist crowd, and now like effective altruism. And so, yeah, I think it's just kind of this building momentum behind this way of looking at the world, which I, I saw on Twitter the other day referred to as the high stakes worldview, which I, yeah, I, I, I love that as a term. I'm going to nick it and use it myself. But I think, you know, it's as good a placeholder for modernity as there is, right? You know, modernity is the high stakes worldview. So, yeah, and I think, you know, it came to institutional fruition through the work of Nick Bostrom. Uh, he's the founder of the FHI, the Future of Humanity Institute. You know, in a sense, he kind of single-handedly made these topics philosophically legitimate. You know, there were people beforehand, John Leslie, uh, that wrote on these topics in very serious, analytical ways. But it was, in a sense, Bostrom that really kind of pushed them into philosophical sophistication. And it just so happens Derek Parfit was his PhD supervisor. So you can kind of see the connection between where I started and where I've just ended. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what's interesting, I, I like calling them the no future folk because they spend their entire lives sort of trying to map out what's going to kill us eventually. That there's there's a belief that uh, you know if if they are right, we're not going to be around to find out about it anyway. So thanks for that one, Nick. I guess what I'm trying to work out really is where do we go from here? Do we put our trust? in the individuals who've been able to create extreme forms of wealth using the technology that we also believe might be our demise. There's kind of a cruel joke here, you know, the, the technology that, that may end up destroying us has given a vast amount of wealth to individuals who now realize that the technology they've created has caused a circumstance that's unlivable. So now they're going to have to try and fix that. And I guess that goes kind of back to what you were saying about we're able to fix the problem. You know, this is their kind of way of repenting for their sins almost. You know, if they can get a rocket to Mars, then maybe we'll forgive them for the extractive corporate capitalism they've been engaging in here on Earth the last 25 to 50 years. It's kind of a weird... Um, devil's bargain moment that we're in right now. I guess my question to you, Tom, is, is where do we go from here? <laughs> yeah, I think just the more people talking about these things, the, the better, because then you're going to get different voices. Some of these things are kind of so important that it doesn't really matter who's talking about them and who's popularizing them. And also I, in the process of being popularized, I think there'll be you know, a diversification of different ways of thinking about this that I think should be productive. You know, obviously there's kind of a resource cost uh, diversification of viewpoints that has like drawbacks, I guess. You know, there's mm. the kind of co the, the common argument, and this goes way back to HG uh, Wells and kind of that era is, oh dear, we've invented, you know, the ability to kill each other and we don't have a unipolar government. You know, this is a, this is a kind of, a kind of at least a century old theme of futurism. Uh -huh. um, 
and was a big theme amongst the, the transhumanists, as far as I'm aware, in the kind of coalescence of the movement. But yeah, I think I think it's only good that there seems to be a shift, and I, I you know, it is down to the spread, the dissemination of ideas around existential risk. But I think it's also down to you know the attention that and the kind of change in tone uh, around climate change discourse, the fact that AI is kind of evidently developing quite fast at the moment. You know that might not continue. There's been kind of boom and bust cycles before. There has been a shift, I think, and I perceive it as good because you know, and it's interesting when you said the kind of playfulness involved in kind of thinking about these possibilities is for most of the the history of going through these ideas, it's people taking the piss out of them more often than taking them seriously. Um, you mentioned Jules Verne in the book. Yeah, 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 and, and Jonathan Swift as well. He you know he gets a look in because he absolutely hated science. He thought it was you know kind of these like. <laughs> weird antisocial uh kind of you know freaks that were just playing around with like vacuum pumps and wasting their time and not contributing to civilization and you could say that back when he was around because there wasn't like the genuine undeniable material changes wrought by science hadn't yet picked up that much pace they did in the century afterwards with the industrial revolution but, you know, yeah, people have always kind of taken the piss out of them. There's always been a kind of nonchalance around these ideas. And I think it comes from a kind of recourse to common sense. And, you know, let's go back to Aristotle, that recourse to like, what I know is what there is kind of thinking. Uh, and you, you see this kind of with the COVID situation as well, like particularly the kind of people that kind of COVID denial curious, right? You know, they kind of like, oh, we've gone through this in the past. It's We can go through it again. Uh, everything will be fine. We don't need to do anything. We didn't do anything in the past. Obviously, there's a strange thing going on there is that it, when we encountered similar situations in the past, we weren't aware of them as they were happening. So we didn't have that same moral obligation to do something about them. You know, ought implies can. Uh, yeah, there's always been this kind of scornful attitude to thinking about this. You know, a, a lot of the people that I quote in the book are satirizing people worrying about uh, the severity of extinction or a very rational end of the world. You know, that's the kind of title of the first chapter. And it comes from an article totally taking the piss out of these kind of new ways of thinking. So from my perspective, from, you know, that kind of all being in the background of my mind, I'm just so happy that there is this kind of shift towards people actually thinking about these things seriously and yeah i think you know where do we go from here um you know that's a job for the engineers the politicians the decision makers the policy makers right yeah. so you're just going to relinquish control are you <laughs> well no i mean I that's not that's not the answer i expected after reading this book i mean <laughs> but i do understand sort of your optimism there because and you say something so beautiful within within the pages of the book which is that existential or an understanding of existential catastrophe comes with existential hope they come as a pair you know we need to predict the risks that may eventually kill us to be able to then mitigate and and come up with strategic responses to them. But and 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 I understand that that's what's motivating your uh, optimism there. But I'm also slightly concerned about self fulfilling prophecy because the, the more we do probabilistic forecasting or futurology, and the more that sort of informs our understanding of our the possibility of our annihilation. And the more we create these global models and these forecasts, the more we become sort of secure in the, I guess, the agency and the authority of that 
information and how it presents itself. Basically, if, if a computer model tells us that Miami is going to be underwater in 20 years, then what we do in the present is go, oh, that is a fact. Miami's going to be underwater in 20 years. It hasn't come to pass. It's not actual yet, but we assume it's a fact. And then we start doing investments into things like sea walls. So we're basically going to drive investment around building massive protections around the island of Miami to make sure Miami isn't under 20 foot of water by 2050 or whatever the uh, proclamation or the prediction is. And what that ends up doing to us is we're focusing on the solutions as opposed to focusing on mitigating the problem in the first place. Why don't we stop Miami being 20 foot underwater instead of finding solutions for when Miami is 20 foot underwater? So it just feels like we should probably be concerned about self-fulfilling prophecy because a preoccupation with these sorts of risks it could eventually end us up in a place where we we create the scenarios for these risks to actually occur. You know, if we allow Elon to to build his rockets, we can not worry about how we're how we're gardening our current planet because at least we can physically see our backup plan, our, our plan B being being built in front of our eyes. I mean, it just feels like we're at this very mimetically dangerous point in time where what we decide to put our attention on is what's going to uh, what's going to define our our outcomes. The present really does have an affect over the future. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. It's kind of one of the dynamics that begins as soon as kind of prediction in the modern sense begins is that kind mm-hmm. of, you see it in the, you know, the kind of beginning of the stock market is that kind of self-fulfilling prophecy aspect. Yeah, I, I, you know, people talk about moral hazard as, you know, one of the uh, reasons not to invest or look into geoengineering, stuff like that, you know, as you point out, this idea that if we have the means to mitigate it, we can still keep treating the earth as a trash heap. I'm not sure if they, the, these, these things are kind of so intimately connected in that sense that uh, looking for the solution to things precludes acting responsibly. I mean, me personally, kind of as, you know, talking about horticulture and gardening the galaxy, I think that, you know, biocomplexity uh biodiversity has like an intrinsic value so you know yes we should be looking at ways of putting fail safes into you know not just human life but life kind of earthbound earthborn life more generally you know creating redundancies in that and the only redundancy at the scale of an astrophysical disaster is spreading beyond just a single planet or even you know perhaps a single solar system you know we can invest in all that and that's ultimately probably one of the only ways to actually build longevity into whatever it is we're doing here. And at the same time, also recognize the intrinsic value of the things that we're currently messing up. We need to, you know, not fall into that kind of uh, moral hazard, self-fulfilling prophecy trap. And I, yeah, I think one of the, one of the ways is, is thinking about kind of intrinsic values in that sense, kind of things that are good regardless of their instrumental value to us. I think that's very important a cosmos with life, more life in it is better than one without. And that means that, yes, we should protect the earth as it currently is, but also invest in those kind of ways of going further abroad. Such as they are, they are what they are right now, uh, which leaves a lot to be desired, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, reading and, and looking at your work, the, the, the wonderful sort of revelation for me was 
a lot of these ideas and a lot of these dreams that we have about the future are historically based. If we want to understand the future, we really do have to understand our history because that's the way in which we we craft and form um, what we want to put out into the world. And you so beautifully say that our mental time travel, the, the fact that we can mentally choreograph hypothetical futures, predict the non-present, plan and strategize, that's the thing that is so important about being human. That's the thing that's worth preserving. And that's the thing that we might find out is what allows for our preservation that 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 unique uh, way of being that unique value that we have is our ability to constantly overcome what is thrown in our way and it only happens in a in a, a change of mindset you know it's not really technologically based it's about how we think about nature it's about how we think about ourselves it's about how we think about the cosmos we're not an individual capital i sense we're not an individual in this we are a collective in this and and we all have to come together to be able to mitigate these risks there nothing here is inevitable. At least that's that's the hope that I was seeing in your words. Correct me if I'm uh, correct me if I'm wrong there. No, no, ab- absolutely. We have the ability to we we can look into a future that we want and then find a way to try and get there. But I but, but I wonder one step further, Tom. I wonder if the actual act of looking and the act of describing and the act of future gazing itself, as you so beautifully describe in the book, I wonder if that is the thing that creates the future that we bring into the present and actualize in the present. You know, I, I wonder if that's the thing itself. Let's have the right sort of narratives now for how we want to tell the past of the future, mm. if that makes sense. <laughs> you know, again, there's that kind of, you know, hyperstitional aspect of all this. There's, <laughs> there's the, um, you know, and I think that's often talked about in a quite a fateful, bad way. But there's also something about values themselves, which are kind of attractors. They kind of, whether you're you're a utilitarian or a deontologist, uh, you know, no matter your kind of ethical philosophy, the true value really exists in the future, I think. Because as, you know, William James said that, you know, all of our thinking about values has to be shot through with facts. And I think that's also one of the kind of lessons of, I guess, the story that I've tried to tell even though a lot of it is about that kind of building distinction between those things, at the same time, it's always this kind of responsiveness between the two. And yeah, I think everything we've learned shows us that as opposed to kind of, you know, uh, again, to kind of bash on Aristotle, he said that everything humanly achievable had already happened. So being good is just being kind of like the past in the, in the better ways, like the peaks rather than the troughs. I think we now realize that that all exists in the future. So I know I completely agree. Uh, of course, kind of in a sense, I guess, you know, being interested in history, of course, all of my tenses are always going to be completely tangled up and reciprocal. But yeah, I absolutely agree with you that we need it's we need to have the right ways of thinking about the future now to to get to where we want. Um, and, you know, like you, you said, like kind of the FHI, like the new future, the no future crew. Uh, I haven't heard that one before. No future folk. Yeah. The no, the no future folk. You know, I think it's just a kind of contingency of the order in which things have happened. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my colleagues there, Anders Sandberg, uh, he's this brilliant polymathic kind of genius. Um, and he's writing this book that's kind of the sequel to all this stuff that's already come out about, you know, the... Uh, 
many ways that we could die. It's called Grand Futures, and it's just this kind of compendious tour through all of the great, brilliant futures that we could realize. And uh, obviously some of them are incompatible, maybe, in terms of their kind of ethical content, uh, who thinks they'll be good. But, you know, again, uh, I don't want to be kind of the Panglossian optimist, but it's the job of future history to kind of figure out those distinctions and incompatibilities and sift through them. And I guess, I think what we're lacking now, and people like Anders are fulfilling that void, is a greater sense of the kind of menu, the options Mm -hmm. available to to us. So I think, yeah, I, I think that that is, that kind of void is going to be redressed because as you say, uh, historically, these two things are absolutely intertwined, existential risk on the one hand, existential hope on the other, you know, back in the 1750s, uh, you know, the first people that started worrying about these things also instantly we're talking about these kind of, you know, and this was so speculative and science fictional back then, but these, you know, massive mitigation schemes that future humans could put into effect. One of the, my favorite ones is Lord Byron talked about, you know, a planetary defense system, ballistics, steam-powered ballistics to fend off incoming asteroids. You know, that was nonsense at the time, but now NASA has a planetary defense. Uh, so, you know. Uh, Be careful what you wish for, because it might just come <laughs> true. And, and, and it works like yours help us realize what humanity has wished for in the past so we can prepare for the shit that's coming around the corner. It's like, oh, this is the way we were thinking about things. You know, a book like this makes me realize that in no way, shape or form should we, should we get rid of those hangups from the past, those hangers on from the past. But what we should do is appreciate them for what they were at the time and understand how they're infecting and inflicting upon our possible future and the future making that we're doing in the present. And and you give us a, a tease of a, of a thing that we can do here in the present, which is uh, about readopting this idea of the human vocation. And, and you say how humanity itself constitutes a type of daring project. You know, humanity is the thing. And then and the funny thing about existential risk is that it can be used as a collective noun. It can describe a, a group of things that may cause us trouble, or it can be used as a verb. It can be used to talk about the things, the risks that are worth taking. So how do we update the Enlightenment mission for the future? In other words, what is useful about this idea of of retrieving the human vocation? In other words, why fight for our survival unless we know what we're fighting for? Yeah, you've answered your question right there because there's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's fighting for our survival is realizing what we're fighting for in a sense. So it's kind of, giving a reason to why we're here. And, you know, in a sense, it's similar to what we were talking about with kind of, you know, recursiveness across time between future and past, present. There is a recursivity in that, you know, and again, these are all unfounded questions. I, I, I you know, wouldn't say that there are any answers here because I like the future. And if there are all the answers we have in the present, then there's no future. But yeah, so it's, I mean, this, this idea of the human vocation, you know, something to the kind of someone who's read enough Freud, Nietzsche, Marx would probably be very <laughs> suspicious about such an idealistic notion. Basically, at its kernel, it's the idea that we're not just here to survive. You know, Kant actually said this. He said, human maintenance is not enough. We need to kind of excel. We need to, you know, improve. So that's the idea. The vocation is the idea that we somehow earn what we are rather than just inherit it from the past or from our germline, from our genome. 
it's the sense that we somehow make it is what we are. And because it's earned, then it can, in a sense, be improved, revised. So it's the sense that the human itself is kind of, obviously not infinitely because there are physical limits, but kind of boundlessly revisable. Unless we screw it all up now, we have the whole future to explore all of those options. There are, there's, you know, kind of vast option value in keeping the future in view and keeping history going. Well, yeah, one of these kind of very comforting things for the elder worldviews that we've been dealing with is this sense of repeatability. It's this sense that, you know, oh, don't worry, humanity dies because humans will, you know, plans of the apes will happen here or elsewhere, you know. I think that we've since realized through going through, you know, historization, what I mean by that is kind of, you know, the experience of acknowledging history on the move, which started kind of 1600s, gained pace in the 1700s. Since historization, we've realized that in a sense, it's our history that makes us unique. It makes us unrepeatable in the sense that when we look at the, that, that abiotic past that I was talking about earlier, it's filled with homogeneity, repeatability, reversibility, in a sense, boringness. And I think, you know, yeah, I think that the future could be filled with fun and curiosity. And I think this might just be my sentiment, but uh, I hold those things dearly. And, you know, I'm not saying that it's going to be a rosy ride. It's definitely not. You know, someone even as idealistic as Hegel said that spirits is never never one to shy away from disaster, you know, its history will be shot through with it. I think we need to kind of take that into account. And, you know, I, I'm going to sound Hegelian now talking about uh, synthesizing uh, counterposed things. But, you know, on the one hand, we have vast, unevidence-based optimism in our history. Uh, more recently, perhaps you could argue more recently, We've had a vast amount of disillusion, pessimism, uh, almost hatred of what it is to be us. I see, in some sense, kind of those things, you know, taking the best from both and, you know, overstepping them in the process in this kind of realization of, you know, the hope and the risk, promise and the peril, you know, however you want to put it. You know, it's not that kind of, again, Panglossian optimistic view that no matter what we do, that utopian future will arrive because that's how historical materialism works. You know, it's not that it's that we have to forge it ourselves. And again, to be quite enlightenment about it, I think Kant said it best when he said, dare to use your own understanding. That means that you have to take on responsibility for getting things wrong. So there's a risk involved in that. You have to risk being wrong to even be right in the first place. Uh, so I think that applies more widely to this kind of big grand thing that we're talking about human vocation is, to get anywhere beyond now, you have to undertake risk. And part of growing up is, you know, this is kind of didactic. It's something we all know. It's a boring lesson from being a teenager that we're all very familiar with, you know. But part, part of that is undertaking more risk. That's how you gain responsibility and stability and identity, a sense of coherent selfhood. It, it feels like what you're saying is that the thing that is worth preserving into the future is human knowledge itself. Even if the thing that we realize through this process of just being humanity is how to destroy ourselves, that knowledge would be useful for other humanoids on other planets or other versions of us that may reappear in the, in the vast future, because we didn't get a 
guidebook to how to do this human thing. And it feels like the only way we could recover after a collapse, if, if only a few people were to survive, or for us to, to restate these cultural imp- uh, histories is to find a way to have knowledge repositories. And, and James Lovelock has talked about a handbook for survival, which basically assumes that there's going to be some humans left on the outskirts, that 1% of humans on, on, on Earth that are uh, going to be able to rebuild. But what I'm really saying is if there are no humans left, should the real project that we, we are, are focused on be about outsourcing, or not even outsourcing, but about uploading the information that we've learned during this process of, uh, of being human, of historicizing the human experience, shouldn't be, that be the thing that we preserve? Perhaps it's the fact that we just preserve intelligence itself, and it doesn't necessarily need to be in the human form, which I know touches on, on some of Bostrom's interests. Perhaps we should just put our knowledge in the in the stars, and uh, at least we know that that's still survivable. I guess what I'm really trying to get to is: is will Earth's apex cogitator be AI or humans? And if it is AI, then you know, should we be okay potentially in a very sort of transhumanist sense? Should we be okay with getting out of its way if if the thing that AI is able to preserve is intelligence and preserve it in a way in which we're not able to preserve it in the confines of a biological breathing human body, one that doesn't travel very well in space, whereas information travels at the speed of light through the stars? Should we should we take seriously the notion that, you know, what we're preserving here is not the human, but the human experience? Mm, yeah, yeah. I definitely uh, think uh, well, yeah, I think that narrow attachment to the human can often be narrow attachment to what the human contingently is rather than what it's it true. should be or could be or, you know, the kind uh-huh. of that more normative aspect of us, that ability to go, oh, that would be better than the current situation with, you know, kind of so much suffering, so much awfulness in the world. Let's see how we can get there. You know, these things are very complicated, but I think, yeah, narrow attachment to the human uh, hasn't worked well in the past because our definition of what the human is has always been in that sense, very contingent. So the universalism of kind of these people I was just talking about, Kant, Hegel, etc., was universal only for a specific demographic of people. So that was what I would say, narrow attachment to the human what the human is in the kind of wider sense of the vocation, that's the sense I touch on with the ability to correct oneself, the ability to revise oneself. So there's kind of nothing essential there. You know, the question of whether you can get disembodied intelligences, you know, that's a kind of different one. But, you know, in the same way that I would posit that someone from, say, the, let's go for the 11th century, they probably wouldn't recognize us. Uh, I think we can expect the same thing to happen down the track. And I think there are two ways of looking at this. You could be a Nietzschean and go, oh, it's, you know, history is re- written by the victors. Of course, the change will be retroactively seen as good. But I think the other way is, yeah, you know, uh, it's kind of sloughing off those contingent aspects of the human is what gets us kind of beyond those kind of uh, parochial chauvinistic aspects. Uh, um, we realized at one point in time that it was 
irrational to identify uh, massively with your bloodline. You know, I think at some point in the future, we might think the same thing when it comes to the kind of planetary birthplace of the species. <laughs> well, 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 let's hope for that because uh, I, I know you share my sentiment that, that I want for the continuation of humanity. I, I do believe that many of the possibilities that we've dreamed will be achieved. And, and, and Tom, I just want to thank you for writing this, this truly earth-shattering book. And in some cases, I mean that quite literally. There is an earth shattering on the front of the, the, the book. And I just want to thank you for your time and for being on the Futures podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure and uh, yeah, just uh, so much fun. Yeah, who, who knew that talking about the end of the world would, uh, could be so <laughs> would much be fun. be so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you to Thomas for showing us how the decisions we make today might have enormous consequences for the future of humanity. You can find out more by purchasing his new book, X-Risk, How Humanity Discovered Its Own Extinction, available now. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.